three Tuesdays. We've been looking at Saints, Sufferers, Sinners by Mike Emlett. As the subtitle reads, Loving Others as God Loves Us. And tonight is our last week. So we will go over our overriding diagram for the three weeks. So as Christians, we are all saints. We are saints who suffer and we are saints who sin. So, and as you already know, these categories are not equal. We are always saints, no matter what else is going on. And this book is about conversations. It's about how we talk with one another. If we love others as God loves us, then we need to see others the way the Lord sees us, and that's gonna change how we talk. And these are just, we're talking about just normal, regular, everyday conversations, a few minutes catching up, Uh, going out for coffee, taking a run together, driving with the car, excuse me, driving with the family in the car. And these are our prayer requests. Driving with the car. So this book is about conversation with others who, like us, are saints. Saints who suffer and saints who sin. So what is true of us? When we think about the saint category, that is how we think about ourselves personally, our past, what stands out, When we think about our future, uh, what assumptions are we making? And it also, we're talking about our friends. Friends are saints, so when we're listening to a friend, what are we hearing, what are we assuming? And how do, how does, who we are as saints, does that connect in a daily way to the resurrected Christ? Second, we live in a world where we experience evil. Evil expresses itself in two ways. Evil comes at us. And so this is dealing with evil done to me. It's the broad category as a sufferer of significant situations and influential forces. And then finally, how we deal with the evil that comes from within us. How do we live with this tension of wanting to do right, but sometimes that's hard to achieve? How do we change as sinners? So Mike's book, Saints Suffer Sinners, Loving Others as God Loves Us, invites us to care for one another as the Lord cares for us. He cares for us as saints who need understanding to live out of an identity as those who belong to him. He cares for us as sufferers who need comfort in the middle of our difficulties. And he cares for us as sinners who need challenge to our sin in light of God's redemptive mercies. So our first point tonight is biblical change is essentially relational. Knowledge of our sin is to drive us to go to someone. So, um, a case for talking about sin. One reason we talk about sin is because sin is reality. To refuse to see sin is a little bit arrogant. It is to narrow the real world and live in a world of my own design. If I refuse to acknowledge that sin is active, I may be saying that I'm too small, or I may be saying that God is too small. A second reason that we talk about sin, the Bible sees sin, the Bible sees reality. The Bible is written to saints who sin and saints who are sinned against. And then third, another reason that we talk about sin is that the Lord sees sin. The Lord came to deal bountifully with the woman of Samaria 
and deal bountifully with the rich young ruler and the Pharisees and us. So we talk about sin because God is personal, because our identity is essentially relational. And tonight that looks like biblical change is essentially relational. Gaining knowledge of our sin is to drive us to someone. So gaining knowledge of our sin, it has a purpose. Sin turns us inward. Sin, sin turns us into ourself. We become self-referential. The Lord helps us see sin for a reason. His purpose is to turn us outward. Gaining knowledge of our sin is to drive us to go to someone, to God himself. The Lord invites us to become God-referential. Sin often makes sense when we're doing it. Uh, sin feels right. Sin makes sense. For example, anger feels powerful. Um, escape. Escape can be such a relief. And of course, of course it was the right decision, otherwise I wouldn't have chosen it. But then later, those things can feel different. When we realize we've sinned, we may be surprised. Surprised, for example, that I didn't know that was in, in me. Or surprised as in, well, that's always been normal in my house. When we realize we've sinned, we may feel embarrassed. Like, I wonder if she saw that. Um, and we may have known all the time that it was wrong and did it anyway, but then it looks different in the morning. So biblical change is essentially relational. Knowledge of our sin is to drive us to go to someone. If our conversations are limited to affirming the saint, <clears throat> consoling the sufferer, we miss this crucial part of loving each other, sinner to sinner. Because biblical change is essentially relational, knowledge of our sin is to drive us to go to someone. So the next, the sub point under this is, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The handout that I gave you uh, has just a couple of the verses from Psalm 13 that we looked at last week. And I like these, uh, I, I like Psalm 13 a lot. And so I decided to hang on to parts of it. So verse three and verse six, we will be using as a reference tonight. So. Verse 6, the bottom part, says, Because he has dealt bountifully with me. So I thought about changing the word bountifully to generous. Because I'm, when I read the Bible, I'm looking for where is God generous. And so generous has kind of been my word for that. But when I looked up synonyms for bounty, generous did not come up. So apparently bountiful is bigger. So I found inexhaustible, which I thought was a great word, even though it's in the negative. I thought inexhaustible is just a great word. When I see my sin, it makes a difference that God is inexhaustible. So I love that. So we're going to use the phrase, where is the Lord bountiful? And we'll look up some passages actually in the book. I really appreciate that Mike Emlett prints so many passages in the book rather than just giving a reference. I like, I, I just, I think that's really helpful. Now, we're gonna turn to page 123, but we're not gonna look at, and, and we'll go through a few um, 
series of passages, but we're not going to hit them all. So please turn to page 123. All right, so just to get your bearing, the uh, reference, the address of the scripture is at the end. So find, you'll see the first passage listed on page 123 is Exodus 20, 2 and 3. So what I'd like to do is we're just going to go through a few of these. If you have a pencil, that would be helpful. And at the top of the page, write, where is the Lord bountiful? Or you could write, how is the Lord bountiful? Kind of whatever, whatever makes sense to you. And then I'd like you, please, to look at the Exodus 20 passage and underline, just, just quickly right now, underline your answer to that question, where is the Lord bountiful? Thanks. All righty. Exodus 20, 2 to 3. What do you think? Throw out one idea, please. How is the Lord bountiful in this verse? Brought me out of the house of slavery. Great. Brought, me out of, brought you out of the house of slavery. Very good. Any, any more? He's your God, our God. Lovely, very good, yes. I think, what was this, Donna, what did you say? Your God. Your God, our God. Our God, okay. Mm -hmm. Great, okay. Very good, very good. All right, the next one will be, well, the next one, Romans 6. Take a minute, please, read through that, and underline, where is the Lord bountiful? All right, anybody got an answer? Thank you. Excellent. Very good. Brought you from death to life. Fabulous. Thank you. Any more? Go present yourselves to God because we have a God we can present ourselves to. Very nice. Excellent, Sherry. Thanks. Great. Great. Good. As instruments for righteousness, we can be righteous. Very good. Yes. Yes. Excellent. That's right. Because he, the Lord creates all those opportunities, all those situations, all those changes of life. Great. Already, the last one on that same page is Colossians 3, 1 to 5, even though it wraps. Um, take a moment, please, and read that. All righty. Begin, please. What do you think? You've been raised with Christ. Excellent. Raised with Christ. Very good. Your life is hidden with Christ. Yes. Yes. Very good. <coughs> what else? You will appear with him in glory. You will appear with him in glory. Super. Christ is, is with life. Christ. Say that one, Chrissy. What? Um, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Great. Did you have a different one, Sarah? Yeah, Christ is my life. Oh, Christ wonderful. Who is your life? That's right. Great. Christ, who is your life? Excellent. Alrighty, what else? Perhaps that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. I, I picked that one. Yeah, great. What else? How about you have died? Right? Doesn't, it doesn't like feel like 
that's bounty, but it is. <laughs> yeah, it's good, right? Because we're not alive to sin, we're dead to sin. All right, more? What about even put to death, therefore, spiritually new, like that you have the power in him to put those to death? Hmm. Those, we don't have to live It's great, more options on the table than no options at all. That's really different, isn't it? Good, good. All right, lovely, excellent. Thank you for doing that. Actually, we're going to keep going. (laughs) Turn over, please, to page 136. 136. And again, on the top, or the side, whatever you like, uh, please write, where is the Lord bountiful, or how is the Lord bountiful? All righty. Let's go ahead with Isaiah 49, which is the first one listed. So we'll just do this left page. And we're going to underline where the Lord is bountiful. Yet I will not forget you. Hmm, Lovely. Very good. Isaiah 49, yet I will not forget you. Lovely. Very good. What else? I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Thank you. Lovely. Yes. Your walls are continually before me. Yes. And that's a reference, as you know, probably Donna, to Ezra and Nehemiah, which we're learning about on Sunday mornings. So. Your walls are continually before me. Oh, engraved on the palms of my hands. Walls. Sorry, walls. Your walls. walls. Your walls. Sorry about that. Yep. Thank you. Very good. Very good. Okay, last one. Jeremiah 3. Uh, just the one on the left page. I will not look on you in anger. Hmm. Thank you. Yes, Hannah, right. I will not look on you in anger. I am merciful. For I am merciful. Excellent. A call to return. Say that again, Gail. A call to return. Return faithless. Yes, return. Ah, very good. Very good. Yeah, that's excellent. A, a call to return. Very good. Do you see any others? Oh. We're able to acknowledge our guilt before Him. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent. That's right. Because of the Lord, we can acknowledge our guilt. We can actually see reality because we have a rescue. Right. Good. Do you see the circumstance of all this? kindness and bounty, four lines from the bottom. Well, five, you have rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree. Like, ouch, that is just such an indictment. So the context of the Lord's bounty uh, is our sin. So biblical change is essentially relational. The knowledge of our sin is to drive us to go to someone. The Lord sees reality. He sees the reality of our sin. And he shows us our sin 
to drive us to go to him. The Lord is bountiful toward us. The Lord moves towards sinners in relationship. He invites us to take refuge in the sun. However, sometimes we take refuge elsewhere. So our second point is loving sinners as God loves us. Okay, our second point is loving sinners as God loves us. And then the first point under that is, I sleep the sleep of death, <coughs> Psalm 13.3. So in Psalm 13.3, the singer says he sleeps the sleep of death. What is the sleep of death? What is death? Well, we know that Jesus Christ is life. And so to take refuge elsewhere is death. In Psalm 2, the Lord calls us the blessed and invites us to kiss the sun and take refuge in him. And so to take refuge anywhere else is death. In our hearts, we choose. We choose either the Lord of life or we choose death. And I'm not going to speak in the microphone for this. So here's what I mean by that. We refer here to the heart in our diagram. The heart, Mike in this book calls it the disposition. It is the place of desire. The heart's encased in a body. In the body, we are relationally embedded. We're culturally and societally embedded. And we are spiritually embattled. We live in, we live among significant events and influential forces. And the heart chooses. The heart wants, the heart desires. In the Old Testament, the heart's wants are captured in words like worship and idolatry. In the New Testament, the word is desire. James talks about how we want, how we think about what we want, how we feel about what we want, and how we move toward what we want. So the Old Testament idea of idolatry is captured in the New Testament word, desire. Our hearts look for refuge. And I'm using refuge in a really broad way. When we think of refuge, we might think of a safe place, a shelter. However, sometimes we look for refuge to deliver us from more than safety or something other than safety. But our goal is the same. We look for refuge to find life. To sin is to look for life in places that are not the Lord himself, the person of God. So when we're anxious, we might look for a safe place of refuge. However, when we feel threatened, we might look to win, and that becomes our refuge. If we feel like life lacks purpose, then we might want to contribute something significant, and that significance becomes refuge. When we're overwhelmed, we might look for a way to make it all go away, and that, of course, is refuge too. So we look for refuge, we look for life for many reasons um, that may, with many different hopes, but refuge in life really is where my confidence lies. So I, I love this example in Jeremiah 2. They have a great metaphor for looking for life in places not God. So just to 
give you a sense of perspective. Jeremiah was written around the time of the exile. So they crossed the Red Sea, Moses was gone, Joshua was gone, David had been king, Solomon had been king, the, the uh, nation was split, the northern kingdom had gone away. They'd been relocated and other people had been transplanted and now the southern kingdom was somewhere in their process of heading off to Babylon. And so Jeremiah is writing at a dark time when things um, are very, very hard. So the Lord is talking to people in this, in this book who live in an arid desert land where water is seasonal. It's not always available. And so it has to be stored and saved for variations in the, in the weather. Cisterns, they could, so they, they stored water in cisterns. Cisterns could be small like a bucket or big like a swimming pool. Either way, cisterns collected only water sent its way. They, cisterns don't produce any water. So the Lord describes himself in Jeremiah 2 as a spring of endless living water. The people, however, did not want him. They wanted something different. And so they went looking for life somewhere other than the Lord. Here's how the story goes. Functionally, they took God back to the God website and they clicked return and they dropped him off at the UPS. <laughs> and then they went shopping for a God who would give them what they wanted. So the Lord was their spring of living water. They rejected him. They wanted instead a God who would deliver. And they, um, so they're described as scraping for water in the bottom of dry, cracked cistern where there, there's no water. So our search for life comes from our heart. It comes from our disposition. We see in the center of the circle, the heart is where the action is. The heart is where we reach out into the world. And that's the three arrows at the bottom. That's where we reach out into the world through our thoughts, think, feel, do. Thoughts, affections, actions. There's a lot of way to say it. Cognition, emotion, volition. So how do we do this? I would suggest that we often choose our dispositions through a process. Sometimes we're surprised to find we are where we are. We may have taken some turns along the way. Sometimes we, we may find ourselves with a particular heart focus because of a series of hopes that we'd wished for. Or maybe we realize that our heart is facing a certain direction because of fears that we wanted to avoid. Sometimes we discover the disposition of our hearts sort of in the rearview mirror when uh, we realize that things aren't working out. So here's some examples. We are, surprise, aging. Some of us, um, to, be, to be able to be in life uh, for, you know, that, that's important to us, right? Of someday our bodies will fail and we will die. And so no matter what kind of a routine we set up, a fitness routine cannot be my life. Here's another example. I care about my adult children's choices as best I could at my time in life. I tried to impart to them loving God and loving others. However, they are individuals. They are responsible to the Lord for their decisions. I cannot make their choices my life. 
some of us, oh, I'm in school, hopefully to gain wisdom. However, becoming a wise counselor cannot be my life. Some of us get very excited about trips, make lists, plan fun stuff, but adventures cannot be my life. Um, I want to be liked. I want to care well for my friends. However, Jesus, who knew us best, did not himself entrust himself in any kind of an ultimate way because friendships cannot be my life. So here's another way to think about this. Uh, this is our mountain range. I'm thinking over there, if that's okay. Okay. So, uh, we live in a world of human differences. I mentioned human differences last week. For example, no two women have the same amount of money. So at the top of the peak might be like whatever is, yeah, maybe three of those with a one at the bottom. All right, so some ways we're different. No two women have the same amount of money. Um, some women are talented. Others have one talent. Some of us are witty. Others are more concrete in our thinking. Well, this also tells some of my values because of what I have at the top and what I have at the bottom, right? <laughs> some of us are more athletic and others are more clunky. Isn't that a great word? I just love that word. Some of us are fast learners. Others are more process learners. Some of us are healthy and some of us become ill easily and often. Some of us tend toward artistic expression and others create organized structures. So there are a lot of options, a lot of, lot of categories, right? Some people see big pictures, some people see in detail, some people are more intuitive. So as sinners, we can take any of these. Each is a part of life, and it's a good part. But we can make it into the whole of life. We take something good and we make it into something ultimate. And when we do this, we're looking for life somewhere other than Christ, and that is death. So you may have heard somewhere that God is personal and that our identity is essentially relational. We can take this another, we can take this a step further. We can create a CG character, make-believe. It's the, it's the blue one on the left. There you go. That's okay, yeah. And so uh, we'll call her, because, of, because this is Apex, we'll call her a peak woman. How's that, right? <laughs> peak woman has the best traits of several different people. And then we compare ourselves to peak woman. And so when we do this, we're looking for life somewhere other than Christ. Now, if life is sameness, like comparatively, and we're different, we might feel outside, and we might feel bitter toward a norm. If life, for me, is sameness, and I feel safely inside the standard deviation, then I may either passively or actively fail to see and move toward a woman who's, who I perceive to be outside. Now, both of these are death. So we sleep the sleep of death. 
our hearts live embedded in significant events and influential forces like one another and our differences. Our hearts take aim, our hearts want. The heart is where the action is, the heart is our disposition. We pour out our hearts in the direction of what we want. We think, we feel, we do. Our hearts consider what is most important, we feel strongly about those things and we organize our lives toward them. So, we sleep the sleep of death. Where do we go from here? We've looked at the heart's disposition. So what is life? And the other part, well, I've used light up my eyes from Psalm 13.3 to, to capture this. So again, big picture tonight, we're talking about biblical change is essentially relational. Knowledge of our sin drives us to go to someone. So light up my eyes is the prayer of the singer in Psalm 13. Now, this is a little bit of an aside. So how does this show up in our conversations? Last week we talked about listening. So this is sort of part two of listening. Listening is part of the wise, of the give and take of wise love. Listening is something we grow in. Listening builds trust. Listening builds relationship. What's another way we could build relationship? Am I communicating, living in my manner in a way that my friend or my older child believes that I am for her? So here's a suggestion. I've titled this, Get Used to We. We, like our friends, take refuge in places that are not the sun. So here's an illustration. I like horses. I have always wanted to go to a dude ranch. This summer, Ray and I went to a dude ranch up near the Canadian border, and we rode horses every day. It was so painful by the end. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved it. <laughs> we met Megan and Terry. Megan got my attention. Um, Megan was... Ooh. Megan was a bit crass. Uh, she spoke rude things. Megan had loud opinions, and she was expressive in her affection to her husband, like a lot. <laughs> um, and we knew when Megan was angry. Uh, she shouted at him, turned away. Often in the evenings, Megan would sit alone, and she would not let Terry near her. Her eyes, to me, did not look clear. So here's my question. Are Megan and I more alike or more different? So Megan is loud. Megan is an exhibitionist. And Megan is angry. Megan seemed vengeful. Well, we could say that Megan's actions look a lot like pride. Or how about this? Megan isolated herself. She rejected someone who loved her. I think she escaped into an easier world. So, Megan's actions look a lot like fear. So when we look at Megan through this biblical lens, these biblical eyes of pride and fear, Megan and I seem a whole lot more similar. And so, Megan and I are more alike than we are different. 
And we want to see ourselves as more alike than different. Why think in these biblical categories? Does that feel reductionistic to you? So our goal is not to take what is complex and make it flat. Our goal is to normalize the abnormal. Our goal is to look at someone who might seem other, uh, even outside of Scripture's reach, and instead see that Scripture speaks to all of reality and helps us all live in the real world. Why is it helpful for us to see that Megan and I are more alike than different? Well, if I think Megan is different, she becomes other. She becomes someone who I, I can't functionally, let's see, I can't love the same way the Lord loves me. But God is always good. It is possible that, needs, that Megan's needs exceed my abilities. And so if I were in her circle, in her world, we'd probably need to broaden that circle but we can always love one another. So the Lord sees the reality of our sin, Scripture sees the reality of our sin, and the Lord helps us love one another in that reality. So get used to we. Point two, the singer, the, the sub-point two, the singer of Psalm 13:3 prays, Lord, light up my eyes. The New Living Translation uses, return sparkle to my eyes. So all this talk, of death and life is to drive us to go to someone. Ray and I recently went to the CCEF conference, and that's the organization that um, this gentleman works with. And he teaches at a, a school as well. We ended up sitting at lunch with him <laughs> and his wife, Jody. Is that, I mean, is that like crazy? That's like crazy. At the end of lunch, we told him about our Tuesday nights together and asked him what is the most important thing. And I thought his answer was really captured well on page 135. So turn with me to 135, please. Uh, I'm going to read the paragraph that starts, In the Light of This. In the Light of This, Proverbs 25 describes our task as intentional friends and counselors. The purpose of a man's heart are like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. We seek to engage, this is it right here, we seek to engage at the level of heart motive and desire. We help people see how they are forsaking the fountain of living water and are digging broken cisterns that hold no water. We pray that the wonder, beauty, and glory of God's character and redemptive work revealed in scripture will transform affections and motivate a change in behavior. So I wanna read that last part again. We pray that the wonder, beauty, glory of God's character and redemptive work revealed in scripture will transform affections and motivate a change in behavior. Alrighty. Our, the next thing I want to talk about is direction. And I'm going to just read this shamelessly out of someone else's book. This is Making All Things New by David Pallison. So this is about, as we think about Christian change, it's about direction 
really more than anything else. And here's a great example that David writes in his book. Do you remember any high school math? A man drives, ready? <laughs> 300 miles from Boston to Philadelphia. He goes 60 miles an hour for two hours and 40 miles an hour for three hours. And then he sits in traffic for one and doesn't move. If traffic lightens up, he could drive the rest of the way at 30 miles an hour. How many hours will the whole trip take? <laughs> so if you know the formula, distance equals rate times time, you can figure out that it's eight hours. Is sanctification like a calculation of how far and how fast for how long? Well, not really. The key question in sanctification is whether we're even headed in the direction of Philadelphia. If you're heading west towards Seattle, you can drive 75 miles an hour for as long as you want, and you will never get to Philadelphia. <laughs> but if you're simply sitting outside Boston, or if you're simply sitting outside Boston and have no idea which direction you're supposed to go, then you'll never get anywhere. But if you're headed in the right direction, you can go 10 miles an hour or 60 miles an hour. You can get stuck in traffic and sit a while. You can get out and walk. You can crawl on your hands and knees. You can even temporarily get turned around, head in the wrong direction for a while, but get straightened out again. At this point, you'll get where you need to go. Isn't that amazing? Thinking about knowing about our sin is to drive us to go to someone and that life is about direction. And that direction leads to a person. That's just so beautiful. The subtitle of the, this book is Restoring Joy to the Sexually Broken. And uh, David Powelson does a great job of talking to both people who have, uh, on both sides of this topic, people who have been hurt by others or people who have hurt others. Um, anyway, it's just a great book for just generally, it's a great book. You can apply it really to any area. That happens to be the one that he picked. It's a big, big net book. So over our lives, we will make many important decisions that will have weighty consequences. The most important thing about those decisions will be the disposition or the direction of our hearts. Our heart is about seeing God as personal, as God as our ultimate situation. And when we see our sin, to drive us to go to someone, to Christ who is my life. Then we will move in the right direction. The original quote that I've been working from was David Pallison's quote, which was, Christian change is not thinking true thoughts. Christ thinking true thoughts are designed us to go to someone. So that's David Pallison's original quote. Biblical change is essentially relational and behavior matters. However, if we speak only of behavior, we miss the real action. So I'm going to give you homework, only because it's 8.30. There was one other thing I wanted to do, and which is why I printed out Psalm 51 on your paper. What I'd like you to do at your convenience, and since you'll be at home, take two colors. And with one color, 
answer the question, how is the Lord bountiful? And then with the other color, underline the singer's decisions. The singer's decisions, or the singer's response. We know it's David. So as each of our weeks, I wanted to wrap us up with Jesus Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith. In week one, we saw that Jesus is the ultimate saint. We listened as the Father said to Jesus, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the perfect human Son of God, so that we do not have to be. The Father calls himself our Father, and as his children, he wants us to call him my Father. And if you're looking for a reference, I'm pulling that out of Jeremiah 319. Last week, we saw Jesus as the ultimate sufferer. Jesus came to suffer as a human and to redeem us. Jesus came to relieve suffering. And Jesus stands with us in our suffering. He gives us meaning beyond our circumstances, and he gives us meaning beyond ourselves. So this week, we look at Jesus as the ultimate sinner. And we have to use scare quotes on sinner because as we know, Jesus is no sinner. So as we think about Jesus as the ultimate sinner, we're gonna start in Genesis 3.15. Jesus came to earth to bruise the head of the serpent. And bruise the head means a fatal blow. Now, so that's Genesis 3. In Revelation 18, John tells us how the story ends. In Revelation 18, the devil, will, I'm going to call the devil the great influencer, lowercase g, lowercase i. Jesus judges the great influencer who has brought, the influencer has brought every enticement to corruption and every death. John describes her sin are Her sins are heaped as high as heaven. And then John describes her judge, who remembers all her deeds, and her judge who takes vengeance. He repairs, he repays the double portion for her in the cup she mixed to give to her torment and mourning. So Jesus will bring the destruction of evil and the evil one. Jesus will bring a destruction that is bigger and broader than the vengeance that any single person could bring. Jesus will avenge the entire physical world that we see and the entire unseen spiritual world. The next chapter, Revelation 19, celebrates the one who brings this true and just judgment. He is the Lord who owns salvation and glory and power. And Revelation 19 also celebrates with the ones Jesus has avenged. Revelation 19 celebrates with those who have entrusted themselves to him who judges justly. Jesus celebrates with those who belong to him. And Jesus dresses his bride for this ultimate celebration in fine linen, bright and pure. That is us, we belong to him. 
He dresses us in fine linen, bright and pure. During these three evenings, I've sought to show you God's disposition toward you as the Lord who is personal, who made us in his own image and likeness with an identity that is essentially relational, that we live in a world of significant situations and influential forces, but these are not determinative. Rather, God is our ultimate situation. This evening, we've looked at biblical change as essentially relational. The Lord gives us knowledge of our sin to drive us to go to someone, to himself. A lot in there to remember. So let's, as we, as we close, let's think a little bit about uh, some of the things that Carla brought out tonight. Uh, one of them was um, looking for our refuge in the wrong place, looking for our life in the wrong place. That was really uh, a helpful idea for ourselves and for others. She gave us some good examples. That's a subtle idea that we don't always pick up on. But remember, she had the examples of um, fitness, looking for life and fitness, and our children, how they're doing, and um, what were some of the other ones? Teacher, yeah, things like that. Right, we had that. <clears throat> of course, we had the peak woman there. We all want to be the peak woman, so we don't want to look for our life in the peak woman. <laughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and then we had the idea of um, getting used to the idea of we. And she was uh, going talking about a person who looked very different from her, but realizing that she struggles with things that Carla struggles with too. And that's so helpful to us as we're talking to other people. Um, it's not that we have to have the exact same experience as, as someone else to help them, but we realize that we are we struggle in the same ways. That's a very uh, helpful thing. It's even helpful with a small child who's on the floor screaming. You know, you could feel very different from that child, but actually they just want things that they're not getting, and that's a very familiar <laughs> feeling, right? So it's helpful. I mean, it's helpful to not look at that kid and be like, ah, I'm there. I was there. I am there. Right? We get that. So that's a, that's a really key idea as we relate to each other. And then, um, well, the idea of um, pushing us to someone, um, th these things pushing us to someone. So ultimately the answer is there. And I think that throughout this time, uh, Carla did really well at getting us to look at God's word and engage with God through a psalm, right? And that was a way of pushing us to someone. Th that is our answer there, is toward the someone. Um, so those are some of the things that were highlights for me. Did I forget anything? Is there another point there that we should remember as we close? It's always helpful for me to go back over. Just remember what I wanted to pull out of there. I just thought about the fact that Christian changes direction. Great. That was excellent. Right. If I'm driving in the right direction, no matter how slow I'm going, I will get there. So that's that was excellent. Very helpful. Well... I didn't walk up here clapping because I wanted to wait to get ready for a really big clap for Carla for the three weeks. So let's do it right this time.